0: Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hey, Guthrie. Hey, and we have a very special guest today.
1: We do. I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Elaine Casket, and she is the author of a book called All the Ghosts in the Machine. It's a different title, isn't it? Um, and I uh, I think this is going to be a, a really interesting conversation. Um, Elaine and I and Elaine and you, Guthrie, have not met in person. Uh, we've This is our first time really talking. Um, but I have uh, done some reading of Elaine's book and so I just think it's going to be an interesting topic. The topic is um, technology and the and what happens uh, after we pass away. So kind of, I mean, you could tell by the title of the book, all the ghosts in the machine, but uh, kind of this intersection between um, your or your family or your friends uh, digital footprint um, when they pass away. So uh, Elaine, welcome to our podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about wherever this conversation goes. As you say, we haven't met yet, so it could go anywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One never knows. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start. Let's see. You know, I, I think that that every now and then, people hear stories or they might have a personal experience that makes them think about this topic of, you know, the intersection of, uh, technology and things like Facebook and what happens when someone is not around anymore, but their profile is still there and so on. But I don't think unless you've personally, you know had a friend or family member pass away and you are personally the one that needs to deal with it, uh, you know, needs to decide what are we doing with their Facebook page and their Twitter account. I think for most people, they don't really think about this a lot. And so I'm wondering if you agree with that. And then I'm wondering if you can just tell us, you know, what maybe start us off, because I know there's many things, but start us off with one like problematic issue that this poses.
2: Right. I mean, well, the subtitle of the book is the digital afterlife of your personal data. And you're right. It is a book that's about the intersection of technology and our deaths. But weirdly, it's kind of not so much about death, the book. It's more using death as a lens to understand the extent of the control the big technology companies wield over our ongoing, our persistent digital information and our identities. And of course, we're living in this really unprecedented era, right? Where all these communications that were formerly ephemeral that would just kind of come and go and not be captured are now being captured in digital form and they're being captured on these platforms that are not under our exclusive control. So we're kind of giving control and management and oversight of all of this comprehensive, intensely personal stuff to all of these technology companies and of course social media companies like like Facebook might be the biggies, but they're really just the tip of the iceberg. Even if you don't have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, if you're on the internet, increasingly you have a really massive digital footprint. If you have an Amazon Echo Dot in your house and you're asking Alexa what the weather is, if you are wearing a smartwatch, if you have, are you carrying around a smartphone tracking your location data? all of us are using message services instead of calling people up on the phone. So all of this data is an extraordinary amount. And that's what enables the current atmosphere of surveillance capitalism to exist. That's what it thrives on. So I wrote the book partly because I wanted to get people not so much doing estate planning or thinking about what happens to their data when they die. Although, of course, that is increasingly important. It was also to drive home the fact that you know, these entities that you're giving control of your identity to your digital identity to in life still have control over it in death and they call the shots and they're going to say who can have access to it and why and how they're the gatekeepers and there may be various ways in which they're utilizing um, our data after we die so i think that you're right you know unless you've closed down an estate or managed somebody's estate after they die you don't know what that's like unless you've lost somebody and experienced grief yourself you don't know what that's like and you don't know what it's like to manage somebody's digital footprint or try to address things like that after they're gone. But you know, a critical mass of digital age citizens are starting to get old, they're starting to pass away. So increasingly, it's harder to find somebody who hasn't had some kind of experience of the intersection of death and data.
0: So I have um, two, two quick uh, thoughts. So first, here in the States, we're definitely not as far along is in uh, we're not as far along when it comes to thinking about these topics especially from a governmental aspect as uh, you're
2: wrong about that actually you think very so up.
0: so well because, so i know and you,
2: you yeah well i you know have. in some
0: places there's like the the various bills that have been passed the right to be forgotten yeah. and i don't think that any of that is on the radar in the united states but i guess i'm wrong. Well
2: In the united states you have a model law at the federal level called it used to be called ufada and now it's called rufada for revised ufada was the uniform access to fiduciary assets act or and and digital assets act Hmm. and that was a law that any state could adopt that basically said if you you know, make a statement of your wishes for your data on an online platform, you know, like on Facebook or like on Google's inactive account manager, that that statement on that platform can supersede or augment your traditional will that you like, you know, you can actually legally execute some of these digital assets. And then the big technology companies lobbied because that UFADA wasn't necessarily to their liking with respect to them kind of wanting to kind of maintain certain controls. So now there's RUFADA and the, the majority of the states in the United States have adopted that law that kind that model law. Now that makes the United States actually way further ahead than most of the rest of the world in this area Now that doesn't isn't to say that it's perfect or that it's all going in a fantastic direction or that there isn't a lot to talk about there absolutely is uh, but, that that's a really interesting perception that you had that the U.S. might not be as far ahead as other huh. people because you're further. <laughs> so okay, well, it's interesting too because Guthrie ha- has a law
1: degree. Yeah, Guthrie, we thought you would know this.
0: I thought I hey. would know this too, but clearly. Not. <laughs> okay, so for our listeners, then what what does this law enable?
2: Okay, so the down. person, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not the inside outside kind of expert of Ufada and Rufada, but the the basic gist of it is, it gives you some kind of legal kind of means by which to say, um, I want uh, this person to, you know, this executor, you know, to have uh, some kind of say so over the contents of my accounts, not the accounts themselves. The accounts are always like one, you know, one user, one account. Accounts are almost always non-transferable and that's for a really good reason but with respect to the kind of contents of the accounts being made available you know for various purposes you can so here in the UK for example I could go onto Facebook and I could tick legacy contact. And I could say, I want my neighbor number 42 to be my legacy contact. I don't want it to be my husband or, you know, my child. I want this other person, you know, and I'm going to trust them with this portion of my digital estate. Now in the UK, that's not on because in the UK, making wills, you, it all has to be on paper. It all has to be signed. You can't execute digital assets like that. A statement you make on a website doesn't hold water. It's just not a legally binding kind of thing. But if you live in a state where they have the revised uniform access to fiduciary sort of digital assets act, then you tick legacy contact on Facebook and say, I want my neighbor at number 42 to like manage this then that can be legally binding. So that's, so, so, but this is fascinating because, you know, laws like intellectual property law and copyright law are relatively harmonized over the whole, you know, over the world. There's like a, like an international convention around copyright, but stuff to do like with wills and probate and like what you can execute and what wills look like and all that kind of stuff. That's some of the most variable legislation there is. It like varies so much from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And so that makes this whole matter really complicated. But yeah, there's this model law in the United States that can allow for you making that kind of determination or order on a digital platform. So I'm gonna have I, to find out if that's true
0: in Wisconsin. So help that's me, h- help me, help me out here. Help me figure this out. So I'm pretty sure that is part of the terms of service, right? Does, Facebook owns all the data about you. <sighs>
2: This is a very complex <laughs> right? contest so thing. there's now, so there's
0: no right or property then that would have to go through yeah. probate. So this is where I'm trying to figure
2: beque- out. You can't bequeath what you can't don't own. And this is one of the things that really trips people up with digital assets, right? Yeah. I think that we're still getting used to the difference between digital stuff and physical stuff. So people make all these assumptions. They're thinking, oh, well, I'm sure my family will be able to get access to whatever they need to because they're my family or my next of kin. So they make assumptions about what people are going to be able to get hold of. So family is often really surprised and shocked when they realize like, oh, wait, you mean I can't have access. I can't, you're not going to give me my daughter's password, you know, but I need it for this and this and this. And of course, Apple is going to say, well, no, or Facebook is going to say, well, no, all of that stuff. But, you know, with respect to the legacy contact, of course, all that does is allow for a certain level of management or editing or rearrange or sort of adding friends or, you know, controlling access to certain kinds of information. You're kind of like a forum moderator, you know, where you're kind of like trying to kind of keep everything in check. It doesn't give you access to Facebook messages. It doesn't give you those kinds of things. The account is still locked down, and so yeah, you can't bequeath what you can't don't own. You can't bequeath an iTunes, you know, uh, you know, music, you know, library. You can't, you know, bequeath your Kindle books. That's all one account, one user. So that's so that's part of it. But it's just about the kind of legality of being able to say this person can have access to these that's, contents. That's right. So it's not so much about ownership. It's about control and access. And whether Facebook owns your data or whether you co-own it, but they control it, they're still keeping, they're still drawing where the gate is. They're still drawing the fences. Who
0: owns your Gmail account?
2: The account is owned by Google. The account contents are a little bit more contested because it's kind of like you could say, well, it's kind of in a way who owns it is becomes less relevant when you kind of ask, well, who controls it? You know, who like gets to say what happens to it? You'd think that was the same question, you know, you'd think, oh, the person who owns it should control it. Um, But it gets kind of fuzzy where where it comes down to contents that you authored or that you received, but that are managed and the access is controlled by Google. A Google inactive account manager is really interesting because you can kind of go on there and sort of say, yeah. you know, I want this and this and this to be available to such and such a person, my inactive account manager, but I don't want that and that and that. I want that to be deleted upon receipt of the proof of my death or so whatever it is.
0: I guess I always thought that the Googles and the Facebooks owned everything. And mm-hmm. yeah, and they, they, so like if a, if a loved one passed... You know, you could get in contact with them and they had a policy in place for you to get access, but they didn't have to. It was simply a nice thing that they were doing. (laughs)
2: Like it's a feature. Yeah,
0: you know? <laughs> uh, but it yeah. was totally optional because they own everything. Non
2: self serving feature. Um, <laughs> no, it, this, I mean, I, I, well, I think this is one of the big questions of the digital era, right? Because all of these things are co constructed stuff. So, like, basically, if you have an email, there's all of the stuff that you wrote and all the stuff that you received. If you've got a Facebook page, there's all of the stuff that you said, but then there's all the comments that people made on it. So there's mm. like all these voices feeding into it, and most of which doesn't rise to the level of intellectual property, right? I mean, like in terms of like original, like contribution to whatever, like a 280 character tweet really struggles. It would be a pretty unusual tweet that satisfied the definition of protectable intellectual property and so and I think that's another kind of um, you know kind of confusion that people have that like basically any old thing that you write down or any old snapshot that you put up must be like protectable under copyright and it's not necessarily so but you know let's say you had a so then there's so then there's those you know all those different voices but then they're on this platform that essentially makes all of the rules in its terms about who can access that under what sorts of situations situations. And they've got to watch their backs, don't they? Because if they leave an account like open and accessible and able to be logged into, then there's all sorts of possibility for criminality and impersonation and privacy violations against the other living users of that platform that's connected to the deceased person. Um, there's all sorts of concerns that get raised there so of course they need to kind of lock those things down but there's so many accounts of the deceased that are just open and you know available for people to log into still um and that's a really big mounting yeah. problem i,
1: ha- okay,
0: I so had because i had this par- happen i'll, I'll just what? say quick and then i'll let you ask some questions yeah i had uh, i i was sort of part of this whole thing so I have a you know personal experience with it recently where someone passed and um, before you know they they were sick before and so as part of the list of things that they need to you know information that's important they wrote down every account important account that they had and all their passwords on a piece mm-hmm. of paper which is like the least secure thing anyone could ever do but uh-huh. it, you kind of have to because then after they passed I mean, it was this very excruciating process of going in and closing the accounts, and it was really hard to do, even with all the passwords and uh, and stuff, because you know you had to call and close and send death certificates, and it was it was a whole big deal. I can't yeah. imagine. I cannot imagine what would mm. happen if you know, God forbid, someone gets hit by a bus, right? And you, yeah, yeah. You, and so no one has any idea what the username is, what the passwords are, and what yeah. accounts they have. They could have credit card accounts and all kinds of stuff signed up and just Oh yeah. You just you would just I'm never kidding. know. You would so, never so if- know.
2: A list of the accounts that you've got is one thing. A list of accounts that you've got with the passwords is another thing. Because as you yeah. say, that's, that's, you know, a, you're like inviting basically your loved ones to basically hack everything and yeah. basically impersonate you for the purposes of shutting things down, which is a really unsatisfactory uh, response, uh, you know, to uh, the problem and which opens you to kind of security breaches in life, you know? Um, you know, so, you know uh, Sharon Hart. Uh, there's a there's a woman called Sharon Hartung in in Canada who's written about this, and she talks about digital estate myths. And one of her digital estate myths is that hard copy and password managers are the answer. And I mention those in my book, but only as a hack. And she, you know, she you know she says, you know, sharing passwords that might seem like a convenient answer to, to, to stuff like this, to transferring digital assets or to managing them, but it's it, but it's a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid for legal reasons and technical reasons and practical reasons. And also having passwords can lull you into a false sense of security. I talk about a case in my book that was over here in the UK in Gloucester. There was a young woman who was murdered by her ex-boyfriend who coercively controlled her in life and then who two days after the breakup came into her place of work and murdered her. and. You know, of course, her family had a lot to be dealing with. And by the time they, and they thought they had time to deal with a Facebook profile because her sister had the password. They thought, okay, well, when we need to deal with that, we'll, we'll close it down because her sister's got this password. But then they found out that the profile had been memorialized, probably because the media attention or algorithms detected that this woman had died. And so, It was memorialized. The password was no good. That's the definition of memorialized. Nobody can log on to it anymore. So sometimes people kind of think, oh, I have the passwords, you know, then I'll be able to take care of anything. And for this family, it was a real problem because there were 72 photographs of the girl, the woman's murderer on her Facebook profile because she'd been in an intimate relationship with him. And they'd only recently broken up. The Family had really good reason to want to get those photos off, but they had a heck of a time doing it. You know, so uh, so
1: you're so. The, the, you said the, the, the account was memorialized. Yeah. So who did that?
2: Uh, well, this is the thing. Facebook has shifted around its policies on who can request memorialization quite a lot over the years. When Facebook started out, like a lot of different kinds of platforms, they had a delete upon death policy. Now Yahoo had a delete upon death policy. Facebook had a delete upon death policy. This is kind of was maybe the standard thing going on. And then uh, the Virginia Tech massacre, uh, happened. I think it was 2007, springtime 2007. And the, in the remember, over 30 people died in that university shooting. And people appealed to Facebook, which of course started out as a university kind of site before it was launched to the general public. And people said, these are really important sites of memorialization and mourning for us. Like, please don't delete these, these sites. Uh, and then Facebook took that on board and has memorialized profiles in one form or another ever since. Now at the moment, recently, last year, April 2019, they sent out a press release and they said we realize that some families are not yet ready to request memorialization of platforms Um, and so we're going to use AI, we're going to use artificial intelligence to discern which accounts are of deceased users so that we can suspend things like birthday reminders coming and everything like that because we realize that's a quote-unquote pain point for some people or for, or they actually they assume it's for everyone, which it's not. Um, and so so in th- this instance, that's fascinating because now they're sort of saying, you know, you feel free to leave these accounts open and vulnerable until you feel psychologically ready. But it's always been the case that family representatives of the estate could go through a procedure and request closure of the account, deletion of the account. They are not a, or memorialization of the account. And if they requested memorialization of the account, um, or if Facebook found out that the um, person had passed away, they could lock that down. They could be visited. You could still see the stuff that you could always see, but you can't log into it anymore.
0: And it's so hard to be like, yes, this loved one in my life passed away. I would now like to delete them.
2: And this, you know, when the the family, the grieving family in question in Holly Gazzard's murder in Gloucester, uh, when they called up and said, listen, her Facebook page is a really important memorial page for her. You can really feel her joy and her spirit. Her father said you would go on there and you would really feel the joy of Holly and how amazing she was. And they said all we want please is to selectively edit out these 72 photographs of her murderer and facebook at that time just cited terms and conditions and so they couldn't do that 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 represented her privacy preferences at the time of her death and they couldn't selectively edit anything but they offered her them deletion they said well we can delete it for you and they're like no that's the last thing we that's the last thing we want so <laughs> there's, there's not a very fine-grained ability whether it's about selective editing, whether it's about individual users with individual bereavement needs and requirements being able to calibrate what they see or what reminders they get or where that 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 profile is situated, that kind of fine-grained control is not currently offered on any platform.
1: Okay, this all makes me very paranoid. Good.
0: Yeah. Go no, on. No, no,
2: it's paranoid. not good. No, but it makes saying. me
1: paranoid and overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, So that's not good. So, yeah. So uh, here's a question for you, Elaine, about being paranoid and overwhelmed. (laughs) I mean, this is so big and complicated. You know, I mean, this is not just like one little thing, right? As you said, that's just Facebook. What about everything else? Oh, yeah. How do you, I mean, obviously you wrote the book. And the book, interestingly, by the way, Guthrie, because I don't think you've read it yet, is – is really in story format, which, you know, is format I love. But oh, it's general uh, reader,
2: absolutely. It's not an Yeah, Yeah, a, I mean, it's yeah.
1: not like, here are the technological and legal considerations you should consider. You know, I mean, it's it's telling stories mm. to, to make it the points, which, which makes it a, a great read as well. But how do you, you know, how do you deal with it in terms of, talking to people about you know how do you deal with people like me who are now paranoid and overwhelmed <laughs> about this like well, there's so there's so much right there's the technological mm-hmm. there's the legal there's the mm-hmm. psychological mm-hmm. there's the practical wh- wh- help us elaine what should we do
2: <laughs> well what i would say and maybe this first bit won't help very much but what i would say i think in some respects paranoia and overwhelm is almost kind of a sensible response in the face of surveillance capitalism in general and the control of big, you know, the kind of plutocracy of big technology companies. Uh, You know, that doesn't sound very comforting. And, you know, if you read Shoshana Zuboff's, you know, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which was one of the biggest books of 2019, Barack Obama just gave it his rubber stamp when he made it his, one of his books of the last year. Uh, You know, reading that and thinking about all of the issues that raises you realize that, you know, this issue, the issue of what happens to your data when you die and the way that it continues to be controlled and managed by big tech, is it's a kind of a subset, uh, you know, of the bigger surveillance kind of and control issues that we're dealing with. Uh, but we've all kind of sleepwalked into, kind of got hypnotized and reinforced into offering up ever more of our data, you know, uh, in ways that, big tech can do whatever they want with it. And it's also tangled up with all the data of the living. So even if you wanted to kind of extricate all of the data associated with a deceased person out from the internet, there's just no practical way of doing that. It's spread so far and so broadly around that you can't sort of haul it back. And so I think there are several things. I mean, there's no question on the psychological side that one of the features of modern grief with all of this technology having hold of data has to do with issues around organ- access and control and ownership. That you know, expectations that the family might have that they'll have a privileged level of access to the practi- practical and sentimental data that they want to get hold of people really need to be disabused of this notion. You've got to assess, you cannot assume, you cannot assume that anything that is digitally held is something that you're gonna be able to get hold of if something happens. If somebody is incapacitated, if somebody passes away, you can't assume that a corporation, a data controlling corporation is by virtue of you being family or by virtue of you having a really sad story, gonna give you access to anything because it's very likely that they won't. But what that means is, is that we kind of have to snap ourselves out, sort of snap the finger in front of our own faces to kind of wake us up from the hypnotic trance to sort of think, okay, if there is essential practical information that somebody might need, if something, anything were to happen to me, even if I didn't die, but if I were just incapacitated or if there were an emergency, if that is only available, locked behind two-factor authentication kind of passwords that can only be unlocked with my biometric data or like my complex password or whatever it is, then that needs to be held or conveyed, you know, in some sort of other way, the, the, you know, the essential practical information. As the same with sentimental, if, you know, there was a case here in the UK where a widow fought Apple for three years to get access to the photos in his iCloud so that the young daughter who'd lost her dad would be able to see photographs, family photographs and photographs of him. They won in the end, but then it wasn't classified as a landmark case. So another family would just have to go through the same thing again. It basically didn't rise to the level of like new case law. It didn't establish a legal precedent. And so so if there are sentimental things or if there are practical things, the last things you should be entrusting your most precious and most necessary data to that you want the next generation or you want your loved ones to get hold of is companies like Facebook. Because they're not, you know, you, you said a minute ago, you know, about like, oh, you just thought they were doing a nice thing. Well. You know, there there, there, there are a number of different ways in which corporations like that might be continuing to profit off of, you know, the the data of all of those deceased users who are now out of contract because they can do anything that they want to do with the data then. Mine it for uh, market insights, you know, use it to train new AI models, use it as an incentive to kind of keep living users on the platform. So one of the first things that I would do to con- c- combat the overwhelm is to sort of say, okay, you know, you know how would you have ensured in- that information that your family might need was available to them before there were computers and make sure that that is still something that is featuring in your kind of you know kind of plan that somebody would know how to get a hold of the binder or whatever it is in the safe my parents always say there's a binder there's a binder in the safe and here's the number for the safe um you need a binder <laughs> so you still need a binder in this situation where we're still at now we need to still need that binder photographs every once in a while, I take the opportunity to comb through the thousands of photographs I shoot and think, okay, what are the special occasions? What are the hundred photographs that I want to translate into a photo book and use a nice service to do a photo book? What are the things that I want to kind of make sure, if not make sure, at least make more likely that my daughter, myself an older age, future generations might like to have access to this material. That's the material that I transform into physicalized format. I'm not gonna do cartwheels back, handsprings trying to figure out how I'm gonna pass on my passwords. I'm not gonna do that. Because all that makes me feel is more uncertain and less in control. And and I know that my daughter will be more likely to be able to see a book of photographs that I print out today than anything I might post on Instagram or Facebook. Not that I do that anymore.
1: You don't post anything anymore.
2: Um, I post self-serving stuff to promote my book, uh, (laughs) but I I don't, but I don't post anything that I care about, but that's as a result of a conversation with my then nine-year-old daughter last year when I asked her, and of course my family story or my experience, you know, kind of over the generations in my own family is the narrative arc or structure through the book. So it kind of keeps on looping back to some of that. Mm -hmm. And At the very end of the book, I talk about sharenting, which is the parental or grandparental sharing of kids information online, you know, on social media. Um, You know, by the time a kid is five years old, they've had an average of 1500 images of them posted online, usually by their parents. You know, most, over a third of all sonograms are shared online. So the digital self is born before the physical self emerges from the womb in, in a lot of cases. Um, and I asked my daughter how she had felt about the impact I'd already had on her digital legacy, essentially her digital footprint about my posting over the years, which I did a lot of because I was an expat and wanted to share things with people far away. She said she had a very well articulated response. She said she'd always hated it. She'd always felt out of control. She didn't like meeting people who knew her and she didn't know them and talking about her like she was famous and seeming to know about all her likes and interests and what was going on with her. Um, She spoke of specific things that she had felt betrayed by that went back years. I mean, the child's nine. She remembered stuff from when she was five and six about realizing I'd posted stuff that she hadn't known about. Uh, And I said, what do you want me to do? And she said, I want you to delete all the past posts. And, And I did and I don't do it anymore, because another thing I'd said was, what difference would it have made, do you think, if I'd asked you a permission on every instance? And she gave an incredibly wise response. She referred to a friend of hers that's a little bit younger and she said, you know, if you ask this friend, oh, hey, can I take a picture of you in the bath? She'd probably stand up and wiggle her bum at you and she'd laugh and she'd think it was hilarious. And she said, but she's crazy and she's a child. I was like, are you saying there's no way for a kid to really give informed consent to this? And she was like, Yes, I think that is what I am saying. So I don't post about her anymore. Cause I'm not gonna I'm not gonna exert that kind of control or choice or decision making over somebody else's digital footprint when I have enough trouble controlling my own. Yeah, yeah.
1: Very interesting. You know, when you were talking about um making decisions about you know like like but like printing out a photo book now um uh so that years from now someone would have that book of photos yeah. I, it made me think about you one of the things i think we're we're really bad at as as humans um and i guthrie and i write about some of the research on this as well is we people are bad at uh uh imagining or uh, predicting projecting um how they're going to feel about things in the future uh, what's going to be important to them in the future and i know uh for instance i um my uh i had family members my parents passed away when i was quite young like well not that young but in my early 20s and this was a, a long time ago and i made decisions back then about you know what to keep and what not to keep and what was important and all of that thinking at the time that I was making very reasonable decisions you know uh this I was making good decisions and and I think that myth of the fact that I'd made good decisions lasted for a very long time until recently when it's like are you kidding why didn't I keep this why didn't I keep that you know and and uh just this all the things that i wish i had done differently so one of the one of the things that i wonder because you said you know think about print out the book the problem is that we're going to make those decisions now but and then 10 20 years from now where it's like well that was that was the wrong decision
2: Oh, but that's you know it's always the case, isn't it? You know it's ever it's you know the the digital age hasn't changed anything about that, other than the fact that because everything is locked down behind passwords, you know no matter what your intention, lack of intention, decision making or whatever, you know you could either pass down everything you've ever written to anybody ever, <laughs> right. you know, or nothing at all, or nothing at all. They couldn't get yeah. access. To- No photographs, no documents, or whatever. So depending on your how slapdash you are with privacy, somebody could either have a portal into everything, your inner world, your secrets. They could discern all sorts of things like marry up location data and emails and search, you know, search strings that you plugged into Google and lists of websites visited and you know, all this kind of stuff, and be like, wait, you know in iCal it says that they were here on that date but why does this email refer to the Hampton Hotel and who is Rita you know like you know like you know if somebody is you know facing a a death that was problematic homicide suicide medical mystery or if the relationship was problematic or if the relationship was difficult sometimes when people have access to a repository of digital data they kind of like go through all of this kind of stuff and You know, can open up more questions than they answer, you know, and they might have access to everything and not be able to see the wood for the trees and not be able to kind of like discern what feels important because there's just so much of it. There's an avalanche of it or people might not leave behind any data at all. There will still be physical possessions. There will still be other stuff but only the inner circle will probably have access to those things. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is you're absolutely right, though. I mean, I saw an article a little while ago where um, they asked a a number of bereaved people about the thing that was really most important to them from somebody they'd lost. And the things that were precious to people were completely unpredictable. Like one guy would carry around his grandmother's like dentures in his pocket, I think it was. Like, Like nobody would have predicted that her dentures would be meaningful or sentimental to anybody but that's the particularity of what's meaningful to people and I'll tell you what there is in the book that's relevant to this it's folks who form digital legacy companies where they invite you to pre-record video messages or audio messages or emails or whatever to be queued up and like sent at various points after your death so you'll never miss a birthday or you'll never whatever so this is the whole kind of like getting emails from the dead or being stalked by the dead whichever you know you know uh, Uh, You know, either you love this and it's amazing and it's fantastic, or you're thinking, I really feel uncomfortable with this, but I don't know how to feel about turning it off either. Um, That's really interesting because that's you trying to predict, like, what is going to be important to kids that might not yet be grown yet, or like how things are going to be in 20 years. There's all of these variables that you just, it's a really strange experience to sit down and kind of think, oh, if I were to die at some unknown time in the non-specific future, like what messages would I want to give to my daughter on her 20th birthday? Like, it's just a strange, you can't, you're right. You can't predict it. So it's it, the business models of companies that are trying to invite you to try and to sign up to do this are interesting mm. to me. And they always sort of wonder why they don't do better. And this is why it's this very odd exercise. Um that's hard to carry off.
0: Hmm.
1: Mm.
2: So Guthrie. Yes. Are Are
1: you gonna based I'm on all this overwhelmed as well? <laughs> yeah, I think we're all over. no, I'm not overwhelmed. No, Are you gonna do anything? No, you're not overwhelmed, are you? No. All right. So what? So based on this conversation, are you gonna do anything differently moving um, forward?
0: Well, I. I mean. I've I've pro- I'm probably one of the strange people who who thinks about this kind of stuff.
1: Because of personal experience and legal background, I yeah. would guess. Right? Yeah. And just just your own weird personality. Yes.
0: But, you know, it's also <laughs> it, it is slightly I mean it, it's for me pers- personally, it's slightly less important. Uh, I am I'm not married, I do not have kids. You know, there are obviously people who care about me and blah blah blah, but it it's not exactly as if you know, um, it, it, it's not like people are depending on me, or you know, like like there are the, the lots of things that have to happen um, just because I'm younger and there's just you know I don't mm-hmm. have a whole lot going on. Um, so that it's, you it's, you
1: also have a pretty minimal uh, online.
0: That's completely untrue. Profile. Are you kidding me? Oh, that's
1: me? untrue. Oh, I guess Facebook, I don't. Facebook. I have like
0: seven you. Gmail accounts, LinkedIn. Oh, okay. I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, Instagram. But
1: apparently, I'm Reddit, not following you on anything, am I?
0: Thousand video game <laughs> platforms. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't have a whole lot of public. I like. It's not. Yeah, it's true that I don't have like a ton of public personas or anything like that. But yeah, I have. I have a. I have a billion online accounts. I mean, I. I grew up in the age of the internet, so. I have, I have way more, I mean, if you look at like, uh, uh, I do, I spend way more time interacting with online companies than I do with offline companies.
2: I have a question, Guthrie, about your professional stuff, because I'm wondering if your situation is kind of like mine in terms of, um, you know, kind of confidential or protected communications. And I don't know what kind of law you practice or if you're like actively practicing or or what, mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for me as a I'm a psychologist. So, you know, at least one of my account or two of my accounts have information in them that are like clinically sensitive or confidential information. Um, and you know, my personal assistant has to sign a confidentiality agreement and be registered like with the information commissioner's office, which is the data protection agency here in the UK and all that stuff. And so like we were talking about the password hack a minute ago. Um, like so, if on one hand it would be a problem if people couldn't access information, if somebody couldn't access information about my clients because if something were to happen to me, then obviously my clients need to be cared for or they need to be re- transitioned. So, I have a, a clinical executor for that, hmm. you know. Um, and so, um, but I couldn't just, for example, leave behind a password for my computer or for my Gmail or whatever it is, partly because in life, I'm not allowed to let anybody else use my devices because of the information that's on there. Um, you know, and I can't just sort of open that up to anybody who might be able to log on. So I have to think about that really carefully and I'm presuming it's the same thing for other kinds of professionals, including lawyers as well. Is that, is that a consideration for you?
0: Well, so the, the short answer is yes, but the medium answer is much more complicated. Um, in the United States, there is quite a big difference between the medical field and the legal field. There, uh, <laughs> the uh, the body that regulates uh, attorneys, lawyers in the United States um, is usually, for the most part, the Supreme Court in each of the 50 states. So yeah. there is there is no federal anything. It's not even really regulated by a governing. By like an elected body there aren't really laws mm. for in, in the same way that you would regulate uh, doctors for example which um, there's you know HIPAA and all sorts. there are so many medical regulations I was just at a, um, a little friend get-together in Austin this weekend and one of the people who were there he's uh, he's a doctor who I think does some telemedicine mm-hmm. um, and you know so I'm sure that he has to he would be much more knowledgeable because he, you know, he's talking to patients and has patient records all over all of his stuff while he's at home. Um, yeah. For the most part, I think it's kind of standard practice. Is you have the work computer and the personal computer. But I am not. I'm certainly not an expert on the medical side. On the legal yeah. side, uh, you know, everyone should know that uh, I I I passed the bar. I, I am a licensed attorney in the state of Illinois. But I do not. Um, I don't really actively practice. I do, you know, contract negotiation and small stuff like that. But I don't have, um, you know, uh, clients that invoke uh, that sort of uh, uh, lawyer uh, attorney-client privilege um, that that a lot of practicing attorneys mm. have. That said, yeah. in Illinois, uh, which is the this is the state that I I know the ethics rules to, there is a whole there's a whole section on Um, privacy and especially what happens when you pass and the you have to have just sort of like you I don't know if I would call it you know it's not exactly an executor but there is a there's you have to have in place the uh, the process for when you pass the transfer uh, secure transfer of documents and information to the you know to what comes next yeah exactly and that there's a whole system and you have to have that system in place um Generally, I would imagine uh, the the smart thing is to just have a is is to have a wall and have Mm -hmm. your personal stuff somewhere and your legal stuff somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. Given the technological sophistication of a lot of attorneys, um, that is certainly being not happening at all. So. Well, I
2: mean, we see all sorts of stuff in politics as well. Like, did she use her personal email? Did he use his personal email? Like, what ha- What ends up happening in practice, yeah. especially yes. since everything kind of like triangulates within the smartphone or whatever, it's kind of like if somebody gets access, you know, whether, w- irrespective of what account it's in, sometimes if somebody gets access to the smartphone, they can get access to all of it, like in one place. And, and I think that that's the thing also about, it's not just about what's in what accounts. Whenever you're talking about your digital data, because it's such a hyper-connected, world that we live in and a lot of what we do online is about connecting with and to and communicating with other people. It's like you can't really access a deceased person's data without accessing the data of a whole bunch of other people too, you know, including people who have signed up to a particular platform with understandable expectations of privacy. And I think there's a kind of a freedoms issue here in terms of kind of like the freedom to um, kind of express yourself. It's kind of, you know, uh, if I knew that every person I ever corresponded with ever, you know, would, if I knew that their next of kin would eventually have the right to access all of that correspondence, I feel like that kind of Affects the freedom with which you feel you can communicate in life to kind of have that guarantee. I mean, I realized that it was ever thus, you know, and if somebody died with a box of letters leaving behind, you know, there's your letters, fine. But it's just the amount of kind of exposure, kind of uncertainty about, you know, who all has access to your data. It goes right down from the very personal level right up to the corporation level. Um, and we just realize how much control we actually cede or surrender when we, when we put our stuff out there but convenience is the convenience and ease and the kind of all in one place kind of thing that we're so seduced by understandably um, you know makes us take these shortcuts and engage in these efficiencies and have all the information together in one place Um, so but for me yeah professionally I've had to think really hard about it because I'm thinking well you know if I give somebody passwords to my computer I'm kind of breaking the law you know, because of my client's data.
0: So the, the way to do it um, is to have the double devices and mm-hmm. have the work device be remote managed by your organization. So if yeah. you pass, the IT admin could just press a button and yeah. uh, re, re, transfer it. Yeah, re, or just reset it, right? You just, just uh, yeah, you know, everything lives mm-hmm. on the cloud. And then it's, anyways. Mm-hmm. so that's... That's one yeah. way to do it. In theory, you could use uh, blockchain too.
2: Futur- yeah, futuristic I mean,
0: blockchain tech.
2: I, I think that blockchain and other things like this, and, and of course, the more you know, if the web moves in a more decentralized kind of direction where we have greater data portability and stuff like that. I mean, Sir Tim Berners-Lee he has been talking about how you know the internet that he envisioned has drifted so far <laughs> in its <laughs> sort of hyper-centralized kind of form from anything that he intended it to be. And he's sort of saying, you know, we really need to start you know, kind of having greater control over our personally identifiable, personally associated data and we need to be able to kind of have more authority and say so over what we do and control over what we do with it. And I agree with with him. I think there's a few bells that kind of need to be unrung and a lot that needs to happen kind of politically and societally and technologically, but, you know, blockchain technology is, is amongst, you know, the kind of technologies that might ultimately be able to help. Um, you know, in that regard, which is way beyond, you know, my particular area of expertise. I'm just encouraging anybody and everybody who might be listening to this, that this is a something that we really need to be thinking about practical solutions for the future. You know, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, well, hold on. Can I just say one thing yeah, to help clarify yeah. for
0: you for for our users out there? Uh, blockchain technology, when allows when you use it, you have the entire history of every transaction that's ever occurred um, in the blockchain. So that's why it's so great, because every time you use it, you're basically using a brand new, fresh history of every single thing that's ever happened. And so, um, in theory, if you have advanced blockchain technology, uh, you would, would have to be centralized in some way. So it's not, you know, it's not Bitcoin. It's not the perfect... Um, it, it's not blockchain in the way that it's you can be completely anonymous, um, but it's using the blockchain technology in a different way. If it is centralized, you could have a central, you know, authority or some sort of voting majority or whatever. You know, when you pass and your settings are, hey, when I pass, I delete everything everything mm. that would be associated to your blockchain account would then be deleted and it would be deleted yes. across the chain and that's yeah. that is the the way by that's the way cuz you can't use the blockchain unless you're completely caught up so there's no legacy copies there's nothing like that once it's off the chain it's gone from all devices simultaneously at the same time so it is technologically possible to have to be deleted all at the same time using blockchain. Yeah. So that—that's what I was trying well,
2: absolutely. to. Absolutely. So it's like having imagine all the accounts you have and everything you've ever written and everything that's associated with you, like your, like you know, identity, sort of you know, connected to all of these links on the chain. And you know, once you're, you know, the, the chain can be pulled back and everything comes with it. And then there, it's able to kind of you're able to extract everything. Whereas most people don't have their like digital stuff organized in that way. You know, we're dealing with a really you know more kind of cutting edge technology. But yes. you're you know, but you know. No, you're absolutely right. You know, this is this is the kind of because th- right now, you know, I always say in my talks, you know, there are no like digital worms or virtual carrion beetles that can traverse the Internet, like sort of like nibbling away every single trace of you unless every single trace of you is connected to a blockchain. Yeah.
0: So, so the uh, the the other thing I was going to say is there is um, this that's that's maybe the future answer. But the medium uh-huh. answer is perhaps what I like to call pooling which is to strategically pool your types of data in different accounts. So for example, I have like seven email accounts and I use each of them very strategically. So one of them is, I mean, I don't do it perfectly, but one of them is for, you know, close friends and family. I only use it for just personal messages. Like if I'm emailing, you know, my uncle or something. Uh, Another one is for very much you know i need to sign up for something kind of sketchy just because i don't want you know i don't want to have to uh get ads on the site anymore so i'm signing up but so I'm, i've made an account but i'm never going to use it it's just so i can have an account and i'm going to get spam on that account and whatever that's my junk account and then i have my slightly less junk account which is would be like an airline and then i have you know, two different work accounts: one my personal work, and one for you know if I need to sign up for something at work. So, so like I've, I'm pooling all of my email accounts, and so in theory, it it'll be easy. You know, in the future, if you know it's easy to leave, leave instructions: hey, you can just delete everything that's in this email account. Yeah. This email account has the important stuff. You know here. You know that. So 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 there, or um you can use different services, right? If you yeah. are, you know, maybe uh, don't use the same service to send uh, uh, messages to like your kids and also uh, potential dating partners. You know, maybe yeah, use definitely. two separate pools for that kind of stuff. And so you can sort yeah. of, you can sort of rig it in that system so it's not all in one bucket. And yeah. <laughs> they're going through, and at one second it's like a touching, heartfelt message, and the next is like you know sex that you do not want people to see.
2: Oh yeah. And in, in the book I tell a story about um a woman who lost her brother, uh, an Israeli woman who lost her brother, and she managed to use his um Google, uh, his his like email to like hack into all of the various other accounts and like get things closed, but she kept his email account open and she did a really interesting thing. She sort of did this kind of personal like scrubbing where he was on on the apps and he was dating and he was divorced and he had these two kids and she wanted to kind of give control of the contents over to his kids eventually but before she did that she went through and she describes this system which I talk about in the book where she like looked and she, if she saw it was a woman's name and she opened it quickly then she would just delete it so she was like feeling like I don't want to hand this like sexy stuff over to his kids and so she basically sort of scrubbed it before she did meanwhile her kids which who weren't that young they were like older like teens or early 20s or something were really wanting their father's laptop and really wondering what the hold up was but she kind of wasn't done with this process of what she called like folding his life after him, like full kind of like sort of handing it to them in a neat state, almost like the kind of clothing of like airline disaster victims gets returned to relatives (laughs) in neat state. There is a huge companies devoted to kind of like doing this, And she was kind of engaged in this process. But, I mean, I agree with you about the pooling. It's something that I do myself. But it's not just with an eye towards, you know, my eventual demise, which, of course, is inevitable as it is for all of us. I think there's lots of reasons to be thinking about blockchain and pooling and all these kinds of ways of managing our online data in a smart kind of way. It's not, you know, and and that's, I guess, kind of brings me back full circle to what I talked about at the start is that, you know, anybody who kind of thinks this is a book about death or like preparation for whatever it is, it isn't what it is. It's really actually about using that as a lens to better understand privacy choices and choices about our data and how we manage our digital footprints in life for a variety of reasons, not just what happens at the end. Mm
1: -hmm. All right. But here's what I think. I think that this desire to be social, Right, and because Elaine, I have a PhD in psychology also. So, and and I'm always thinking about, you know, what motivates people. And we know that the need to be social, the need to belong, the need to communicate with other people is such a strong uh, motivator. Yeah. I I think for most people, most of the time, you know, all right, so we could say people need to be thinking about this. They need to care about it. They need to plan for all of this. You know, They need to, to pay attention. I, I'm a pessimist. I'm not sure that they're going to. So you know, do we need to? I think the drive to communicate and share is going to overwhelm
2: the logic and
1: care uh, of doing it in a smart way. This is,
2: not, this is not about this is not about not communicating or not sharing. I want to I want to definitely and I agree with you. I think that we're fundamentally sort of social beings and that, of course, part of our modern milieu is this technologically mediated digital mediated kind of thing. But we see even in the generation coming up, you know, kind of, you know, the, the kids who are receiving digital education in schools who are, you know, kind of learning, you know, or are actively being taught, you know, whether it's well or badly depends on the school District or this kind of program, I'm sure, but they're kind of orientated towards um, privacy and about management of their digital selves in a different way than the generations above them. And there's there's research that kind of you know our default assumption is like oh the kids don't care about privacy or whatever it is, but actually, like my ten year old daughter, then nine when I had the conversation about it, oftentimes they're very highly aware of and attuned to these kinds of things and are more and are more uh kind of cynical or sort of suspecting of things that we imagine and it, there's paradoxes of course and you know and there's you know a very you know various variables at play but i mean i don't think that it's a given that everybody's just gonna always like you know you know kind of let it all hang out as the as the As the digital age marches on, we've really been kind of like in the early digital age. And I don't know what the middle digital age or the next phase is going to hold because the kids now are growing up under a different set of circumstances. You know, they're being, you know, it's not necessarily the case that they're going to be seduced or hypnotized into submitting to the surveillance Mm -hmm. that a lot of us who are kind of unfamiliar with this unprecedented situation are kind of walking into it. Awareness of this is really raising and different regulations and a different culture might come, uh, you know, about if the digital ethicists, you know, kind of have their way. And if the regulators finally get themselves together to start making different demands of the monopolistic big tech companies, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Yes, nothing will change about our fundamentally human urge to connect and to be social. However, you know, much might change about the regulatory and the technological and the cultural milieu around, you know, our data sharing practices online and, you know, and moving to a more decentralized web or having things like blockchain technology that gives us more control coming to the fore, that is going to change things. Well, hey, I like that. That's optimistic. (laughs) I'm feeling a little
1: less overwhelmed, or at least a little optimistic that the generations coming um, coming up after us will will be aware, will think this through, won't be. I, I'm sure, I'm sure that, you know, when, well, I'm not sure. I'm going to guess that your 10-year-old, when she's, you know, in her mid-20s, is going to look back on the behavior of the rest of us, right, and mm. say, what were they thinking, <laughs> right? Yes why how could they how could they have done that or set it up that well, way she's
2: she's already she's already said that and, th- and i was amazed at how she was able to express herself but what i will say now is that now that i don't post on facebook anymore i am now i encounter these moments where i kind of think oh I now seems like a moment when I would have posted something about this on Facebook or Twitter. And now seems like a moment now that I've taken that picture where I I would have put that on Instagram before. And even now only several months after the fact of stopping doing it, it is like I've been sort of snapped out of a trance and I'm thinking, why did I, why did i do that i'm not quite yeah. sure why i did that i printed out all of my facebook posts before i deleted the stuff just because there was a historical record there and when i flick back through those pages and the yearbooks could sort have of grew year on year as i became more sucked into this kind of these behaviors and was reinforced to do that by you know the platform and by all the approval or whatever um i look back at those and i'm thinking But what was that in service of? Like, what was the function of that for me in that moment? And I don't, I actually don't connect with that very much anymore. And I'm only a short way out. So, I mean, there is a sort of a tech lash afoot. You know, in in many sectors, and I feel that that energy is is growing. So I'm and I'm hoping it's growing because I feel like we need to take a much more you know uh, aware and a kind of critical stance, um, to, you know, and in a mindful kind of stance of of what we're doing when we engage with technologies. It's something that we need to do if we're going to kind of survive uh, the era, really. Um, but there are positive signs. Elaine, this has been such a Interesting conversation
1: and I really appreciate your coming on to talk to us about it. So, um, I'll just want to mention your, your book again. And, uh, this is Elaine casket. The book is called all the ghosts in the machine illusions of immortality in the digital age.
2: Actually, can and, I correct you that? Can I correct you there in the United States? The edition coming out in the United States is all the ghosts in the machine, the digital afterlife of your personal data.
1: Oh, cause the book I'm having my hand
2: yeah, you must have been sent the previous edition. The UK. I, you've got a you've got a rare UK edition. I, oh, ah. good.
1: Well, next oh. time. I- Collectors. Listen, We're coming, to, we're coming to, to London in a couple of months, so I'll get you to sign
2: it and then that's it will eventually
1: great. be worth a lot of money.
2: Ah, there um, we go. Well, <laughs> I, I, very much, I very much doubt that, but you know, <laughs> the, reason the, the reason that the title was changed and this is the uh, version that's coming out in the United States on the 5th of uh, March or thereabouts, uh, the digital afterlife of your personal data is the subtitle. Just make it clearer what the book is about, yeah. but you can listen to it now on audible under the previous title that you just mentioned. And I, read the audible version so if you don't hate my voice too much so far you can get more okay. of it on the audible version of all the ghosts in the machine so if people want to get hold of you for any reason you know if they want you to come give a talk or something what's the best can I way facebook right uh, yeah. not, not anymore. Uh, the the best way of getting hold of me is write, as in W-R-I-T-E, at elainecasket.com. And you can find out more about my events coming up and press that I've contributed to or pieces that I've written, some of which, like, involves some more thinking that I've done since the publication of the book on that's one t, uh, dot com.
1: Yeah, and what we'll do, Lane, is we'll post those links when we... Um... If that's okay with you. Now I feel like I need to ask. No uh, we'll close those links when we post. The healthy
2: flog books is definitely okay to <laughs> post on your website. Thank you kindly. I appreciate that. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. It's great to talk to and you. And if
0: anyone else has any other questions, our email is always is info at the And uh, I think I think we've wrapped up. Thank you so much, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye.
2: Bye.